rest in peace, Tyree Nichols. That's mm -hmm. the first thing I want to say, but we're going to lead with gratitude. We're definitely going to get to that in the fourth movement today, but it's always important to leave with, lead with compassion and lead with gratitude. Thanks to each and every one of you for tuning in this week, and thanks to our partners, including Schubert Club. Since 1882, Schubert Club has been creating inspiring musical experiences in the Twin Cities. More on them at schubert.org and more on them here in a bit. Also, special thanks to Salastina. Salastina is class Classical Music's wingman. By day, they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films. By night, they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical was, is, and can be. More on them at salestina.org and more on them here in a few minutes. But again, talking about gratitude, I just want to thank everyone who came up and said hello this past weekend at the Sphinx Conference, naming specific things that you love about Triloquy, just showing general support. I already told you, Scott, you also got plenty of love, even though you weren't there Swish. in person. Just, I'm, I'm so grateful to each and every one of you. Talking into these mics is one thing. Right. When you see in the people, that, that just yep. that does something more. It does. You know, and and I've you know experienced the the something more on the not so appreciative side of things. So I, <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm I'm grateful that that everything that I got this week was a. Uh, what was was good and in good spirits and and all of that. I also want to make sure I'm sending a special congratulations to this year's Sphinx winners, the senior division winner Ingioma Shinere Grievous and the junior winner Brandon Leonard. I wasn't at the junior competition uh, finals, but of course I was at the senior competition finals. And Scott, you know, you were there in in, in 2020, so right. you experienced firsthand, you know, my frustration <laughs> when mm -hmm. when my top pick didn't get it well. For the first time in all of the years I've been attending Sphinx, the person who won the Audience uh, Choice Award, the person who I thought should win, was the person who won overall. So again, special shout out to Ngioma. Uh, the violin uh, competition piece, finals piece, was the first movement of the violin concerto of Samuel Coleridge Taylor. So nice. it's cool to see the Sphinx competition moving more in that direction of shining a light on uh, marginalized composers, even though there's uh, historically marginalized composers, even though there's even more room to go. And I'll uh, speak to that uh, later on in this open opus as well. But one of the highlights, Scott, for me at this year's uh, Sphinx conference was a panel about the canon, expanding, expanding the canon. I think the name of the session was Canon Next or Canon Tomorrow. Anyway, um, there were uh, a few composers on it, including Joel Thompson. And he made a point on the panel that has been just circling my brain ever since I was in that cold ballroom on, on, on Friday evening or, or whatever. And it's inspired in me an exercise that I think I'm going to pull into some of my presentations, especially when I'm talking to college students out there and, and offering the guest lectures. It isn't fully formed and polished just yet, but I wanted to give it a try here with you as as the guinea pig. Lay it on Does me. that sound okay? Mm -hmm. All right, so what we're going to do this week, I'll, I'll, I'll shine a light on the point that Joel was making here in a bit, but uh, to, to sort of do this exercise, I'm going to play a series of musical excerpts, some, some orchestral, some instrumental excerpts, and your job will be to guess the region 
uh, city, you know, part of the part of the country or part of the world that you think. So I'm not this limited music, to a country, right? No, okay. no. Uh, if if you want to get as specific as a city, mm-hmm. that's fine. But okay. just a, a general region, but also speak to why you say that based on what you hear. Okay. So I, I have I have a few here. So we're gonna get started uh, with this one. So what would you say that aesthetic is emblematic of as far as a region or, or a place, if you had to guess? And, and, and you know, you're, you're probably not going to guess the, the correct cities, but, mm-hmm. you know, just make a make a case for what you would assume the music is speaking to the culture or the, or the part of the world. Sure. Um, any China Philharmonic uh, orchestra sort of thing or the Silk Road Ensemble doing a guest spot with uh, any old orchestra from around the world. Okay. All right. Well, here's a, and why, well, before we move on, why do you say that? What is it about those sounds that make, made you think of China or Silk Road? It was the instrumentation. The, the, uh, the stringed instrument that was out in front sounded like a, a pipa or a, a guzheng. I th- am I saying that right? Okay. The, the, one of the, one of those sorts of instruments. Okay. All right. Well, here's a, here's a, another one. Same, same exercise, different musical excerpt here. All right, orchestral music, classical music there of what culture or region? When it first started, it was making me, the percussion was making me think of something Mediterranean. Mm. But obviously that went away when the band really kicked in. And I would say Buenos Aires or Sao Paulo, someplace south of the border. Based on the percussion, based on the the sort of spice. And the spice. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right, here's another one for you. Where'd you put this music? Classical music of Africa. Of Africa. Very easy. But why is that very easy? <laughs> Instrumentation. The vocal techniques, the the rhythms. Okay. The, yeah. Okay. Just a just a couple more here. Uh another another example for you. Thank you. 
probably music of your exact bag. Mm -hmm. where, where, where would you put that orchestral music? Irish, Scottish, UK. Based on instrumentation again? or And the lilt that it has, yep. Okay, all right. Just... Just two, just two more here, um, I'll, and I'll, I'll give you a hint about this one. This this next one I'm going to play for you comes from uh, a composition that I'm going to share later on in the uh, second movement. But this is the the opening of uh, the third movement of a symphony. So we'll we'll listen to a little bit, and so you can tell me where you might place this place this culturally. Classical music of what region, part of the world, culture? America. But America. I was feeling Chicago in that moment. Uh, Chicago specifically. Say, 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 say a little bit more. Um, sort of the, you know, Chicago or maybe New York, sort of the, it, it had a feel like it was imitating the cool era of jazz, like, um, you know, the 60s. Okay. Era of jazz. All right. And final, final example here. Talk to me about this excerpt. music, very lush music, very energetic music. If you had to place that aesthetic in a specific part of the world, where would you put it? Uh, right along Russia and Finland. Okay, so you wouldn't say New York or Minnesota or Tucson or Omaha. You, you would squarely put that in Europe. Just based on the answers and the, the path that we've been going down so far, yes, that's what I that would be my final answer. Great. Very good. So of all of the things we listen to, is there anything that you would just put your foot down and say that is absolutely not classical of, of all of the things that we heard? No. Okay. So if we're able to identify all of these different sounds all of these different aesthetics and tradition and identify them as classical, why is it that that last excerpt is more emblematic of how we use that phrase? What, what would be your answer to that question? <laughs> um, I don't know. Give it to me again here so that I can... Well, let's, well let, let, me, let me reframe it. Yep. Of all of the musical examples we heard, yes. would you agree that that last example for most people, would be more emblematic of the phrase, more deserving of the phrase classical music, just among the masses. Sure, of course. What do you think goes into that reality or has gone into that reality? Um, the, the, the full orchestra, the orchestration. Yeah? 
Because, I mean, all of the pieces that we listened to were orchestral performances. They were the same instruments on stage, the, the same staging, the same orchestral experience. But that one sound is how we have been trained to think about that phrase, classical music. Mm -hmm. To get back to my original point of all of this, so I was sitting there uh, in Detroit watching the uh, panel, and one of the things that Joel said was that in the United States, we have arts institutions that have cities, have regions, have states in the names of their organization. And yet those organizations do not actually reflect those regions or those parts of the world in their programming. We listen to music. So for example, the first uh, thing that I, I share with you, I try to go from easy, you mm -hmm. know, all the way to maybe a little bit more challenging. It wasn't a stringed instrument in the front. It was a Chinese flute called a, di called a diza. I actually, you know, have one. I've, mm -hmm. I've shown you that. I, mm -hmm. I got one uh, for Christmas and that was a Chinese ensemble. As we went on, you know, the, the Tico Tico that we heard, you know, was actually performed by the Berlin Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. but, that, but that is something that you recognize as as Latin American in some way. Mm -hmm. Okay, going again to the African uh, music ensemble, the McAllister African uh, ensemble there with the uh, different uh, keyboard uh, percussion instruments and, and the voices moving on to the Boston Pops playing Cat Rambles to the Child Saucepan, you know, that Irish jig there. Sure. We also heard a little bit of the third movement of the Symphony Number no. 6 of uh, Bill Banfield, William yeah. Banfield there. I'll share a little bit of that in the second movement. And of course, that final uh, excerpt there uh, was uh, the third movement of the Bruckner, uh, of a Bruckner symphony, Bruckner's Symphony Number no. 8, as performed by the Munich Philharmonic. Uh, I didn't even get this, I didn't get the region <laughs> right on the orchestra. We, we, we have all of these different sounds and all of these opportunities to showcase these different things. But that Bruckner symphony represents more of what mm -hmm. the New York Philharmonic plays on any given weekend, the Minnesota Orchestra, the Nashville Symphony, any, you know, I'm not picking on any ensemble specifically, but I think the point that Joel made and the point that I want to make here is that this idea of classical music does not have to fit into that box. As a matter of fact, there are examples of how communities really can be engaged through the programming, through the actual aesthetic of the music that we, we aren't shining a light on through our programming. We're copying being a strictly European way of thinking about orchestral music, thinking about classical music, and superimposing that on the communities of, of many different styles and, and many different uh, per perspectives on music. As we move forward, as we talk about this idea of decolonizing classical music, I hope that that point will help people understand. We aren't talking about a Minnesota orchestra. I'm only saying that because we're here in Minnesota. We're not talking about an actuality, an ensemble that highlights the music and the perspectives of the people of Minnesota. We're talking about an ensemble. We're talking about an arts institution that is a copy of any given arts institution throughout Europe. We aren't talking about an organization that really highlights what we uniquely can offer to audiences in this part of the world as those different aesthetics did that we, we we just shared. We're talking about one classification of classical music. This is that. That's what it's called. It's unmoving. For me, the balanced programming, we don't have to cancel the canon conversation, is irrelevant at this point because, as Joel Thompson also said on that panel, the canon 
is a myth. The canon is something that have that has gone into our conditioning of what we think of when we use the phrase classical music. When I, you know, sit anywhere and listen to even black music of black composers, Samuel Coleridge Taylor and and all of these folks, I'm still hearing an aesthetic and a and an approach to large ensemble music mm-hmm. that largely just replicates a European tradition. Why not go beyond that? Why not explore the the bounds of what classical music is and can sound like, not only from that world perspective, but from the very, very localized perspective, as should be affirmed by the names of our arts institutions? What do you what do you so think about that that approach to making the point? You're say, so you're more in favor of things like Orpheus Chamber Orchestra or Black Pearl chamber orchestra or something like that? I guess what I'm saying is that in the conversation of decolonizing classical music, that word decolonize can be scary or jarring for a lot of people. But triggering. But triggering, sure. But again, we're taking copies of something that you can clearly, that most people can clearly recognize as European and superimposing it on all of what we consider classical music. And the proof of that is the way that concerts are programmed, the way that the general aesthetic centers that European sort of uh, aesthetic. That's what I think can be a renewed way, maybe an easier way for helping people to think about that idea of, of classical music. I think, I think I'm following, but say more about the canon as a myth piece. When we say the canon, again, are we talking about any of the things that I just shared with you in this intro, except for aesthetics that are more aligned with that Bruckner mm. symphony? You know, mm. So that's, mm-hmm. what, that's what he meant by a, a myth of the canon. I tend to talk about a conditioning that has led to the canon. So when when I use that that phrase decolonizing classical music, I just hope that people can take that perspective and maybe think about it as a matter of highlighting the music that is actually representative of a recognizable present culture that exists around these arts institutions. Can I support the performance of European repertoire? Sure, there's a place for it, just as there's a place for all of the other sounds from different communities and different cultures around the world. Can I support the centering of a European aesthetic and a European approach to the phrase classical music? No, I just can't anymore. And I think maybe just saying it to myself over and over again, week after week, is how I've gotten to this point in my Mm -hmm. mind. But Mm -hmm. until other people can really understand what it's really going to take, the dialogues that we need to have to decolonize classical music, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep on pushing. So this is my, this is my new approach to, to uh, try to engage that conversation, not to scare people with the phrase decolonizing, as much as making the point that I think Joel was making, and that is clearly made when we listen to all of these different aesthetics of classical music and really understand the the harm that we're doing in centering Europe in our use of that phrase. I'm gonna have to sit with this idea a little bit. I'm, I've not thought about it in this way. I haven't, yeah. I haven't gone down this light of thought. Um, is this like uh, the other conferences where you can download these things? Will you be able to watch 
this panel again. Yes. And, I, I'd, and, like and to, ex- I'd like to see it. Yeah. In exactly uh, three weeks. So I'll be sure to <laughs> post that one. I'll okay. post the two uh, that I was on. Okay. But, you know, like I told someone, you know, among the many people to walk up and give me a thanks, they said, oh, well, Garrett, I, I had an, another panel that I was on. I'm so sorry that I couldn't uh, join you for yours. And I'll, I'll tell the audience here what I told her. We have a little panel here each and every Wednesday. Mm. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for tuning in to returning listeners. Once again, thank you so much. We couldn't do this thing without you. I so appreciate each and every one of you. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the phrase classical music and works to expand it to include more aesthetics, more genres, more cultures, all toward the ultimate goal of decolonizing the phrase classical music. For more information, to contribute, and to check out past opuses, go over to Triloquy.org, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q uy.org. In addition to your support, support for Triloquy comes from Schubert Club, presenting on February 16th their free courtroom concerts featuring Charles Eaton baritone and Celeste Marie Johnson piano with music that really highlights an aesthetic of classical music. Not the aesthetic of classical music, but anesthetic of classical music that and many more performances coming up by schubert club more on them at schubert.org also a huge shout out and thanks once again to salestina presenting their happy hour number 111 with Derek sky that's coming up on february 4th you can uh get your tickets and find more information at salestina.org we have salim washington coming up in the third movement today a, an american composer based in south africa to get uh, black history month started so mm. very uh, excited to feature him uh, we are kicking off Black History Month in the second movement with uh, some black orchestral music on my end and some uh, blues, some soul. How would you describe Motown. Some, some Motown music that you're bringing in for uh, the second movement? We will speak to the tragedy in Memphis and the finale and and connect that to the arts and some of the conversations that we can have based on that tragedy, more than just complaining, more than just anger, but utilizing the dialogue and utilizing that tragedy to get something good out of it, turning poison into medicine, if you will, all of that in the fourth movement. But for now, we will jump into movement one. I'm going to get us started this week with an article from the New York Times that I think I have to give a natural. I don't know if I can really give it a sharp, but I don't want to give it a a complete flat either. It's titled, He Quit Singing Because of Body Shaming. Now he's making a comeback. The tenor Lemmy Pulliam, who made his debut at Carnegie Hall on Friday, hopes to break barriers for larger artists. So for folks who don't know, Lemmy Pulliam uh, is this incredible, incredible opera singer who has really taken taken the scene by storm, taking the industry by storm. He's also a member of the Triloquy family, was Mm -hmm. featured here on uh, Triloquy some weeks ago. And I have to say, body size, that, that, that body politics, that conversation definitely came up. It came up on Lemmy Pulliam's part. And I'm really proud that I don't, 
it, it's because I, I again th- that's why I gave this a natural because I don't want to completely shit on it, but mm-hmm. I just take a lot of pride in the fact that that is not what our conversation was about. That wasn't what I tried to headline or, right, you or didn't push the like mm-hmm. that. That's I, I just didn't think it was here or there, I, and and it has to be so difficult to an extent to just live a life where your body is just a part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Am I am I reaching or, or am I stretching or maybe even saying something inappropriate? It's not about me wanting to ignore an aspect of a person's life. I just don't like the idea of someone's body, just the body that they exist in being to be a, a point of conversation in to that be, way. Yeah. And it was interesting that he did bring it up because I remember him saying that he was uh, as he started to perform again, he was telling people, now you realize that I'm a man of size, you know, that you're, there's going to be extras that right, you're going to have to right. take care of. And I guess and, the, the the thing is, that it's a shame that that's something he has to say to casting directors it, right. and costumers and all these people. No, I would have thought he he would be refreshed by you not going in at that direction. Yeah, no, well, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm saying as an opera singer, it's a shame that he has oh. to call ahead and say, hey, right. I'm a man of size. Can you make sure that your costumers can actually right. costume me? You know, mm-hmm. I, I think it's that. That's what I'm speaking to. A shame that that reality has to exist for any for any opera singer. You know, same. But at the same time, uh, also perhaps he was he thought he was doing a courtesy. You know, then you know they could avoid something down the road. It's unique to opera as far as classical music for the body to really be yeah. a conversation. Yeah. I imagine it's also a conversation in the acting world, or maybe it isn't. What's been your experience with someone getting or not getting a part based on the body? If it is written into the script as a certain way, then that's the way that you should really go. Mm. If you're, I mean, uh, you know, for example, Shakespeare, you can cast him, his shows any which way you like because he doesn't really designate unless there's that one instance i think it's othello or something where he actually indicates moorish Mm -hmm. okay so there's that um it happens though i mean obviously uh they're going to sell a movie or a show better with attractive people out in front, right? Mm. But then, how are we defining attractive? You know, sure. we have to talk. That's about, a great question. We have to talk about res- uh, not respectability politics, but uh, desirability mm-hmm. politics. How mm-hmm. we make assumptions about what an audience considers sexy or motherly or or ragged, or you know, and how all of these things can jump out as our own implicit biases, as as our own ideas of what good looking, bad looking, what what those phrases are and how we personally approximate those to specific body types. Yeah. Um, For a great example is, I, I think recently there has been more care taken to actually uh, cast people that look normal. And, you know, look at Nick Offerman. You know, I bet all of a sudden now, I bet you he, he will be a sex symbol. Well, you know, Nick Offerman and the communities that I have run in has has always been, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a night. Well, maybe I shouldn't. I, I should I should push that button. You know. <laughs> <laughs> nice catch. <laughs> but anyway, let me let me read a little bit from this New York Times article. Um, it says a rising young tenor in the 1990s, Lemmy Pulliam, dreamed of a career that would take him to the world's top stages. But Pulliam, who has struggled with excessive weight for much of his life, quit singing in his early 20s because of concerns about body shaming in the music industry, finding work instead as a debt collector and a security guard. So mm-hmm. this this article, you know, includes a, a short written interview.
interview uh, with Lemmy. And one of the things he says here that I wanted to highlight was, quote, people within the industry were able to make comments regarding someone's physical look with impunity. In other industries, that would not be accepted, but it was almost widely accepted within the classical music world. It, mm-hmm. felt, like, it felt like I was okay. It was okay to make fun of people of size and that we weren't worthy of careers. It was a very difficult time, and it's still a very difficult time. We can talk about Scott decolonizing classical music aesthetically, but I think this shines a light on some of the other reverberations of the violence of the harm that a tradition like this can perpetuate if we let it. You know, we have the phrase, it's not over to the fat woman sings, you know, in, in opera. Mm-hmm. We, we have, as we were just speaking to the, the issue of uh, having to call ahead because they'll have uh, a costume for the skinny mini, you know, size zero uh, soprano. But if, if somebody who actually has a little meat on their bones shows up, oh, now there's an issue. Now there's this. Now there's that. Oh, we didn't know. Or, oh, we have to find all of all of these things. It just feels like in the seams of opera and largely of of Western classical music, there are all of these traditions that we just need to get rid of. There's no reason to hang on to these things. The quote right after the one that you shared got to me because I've I've heard something similar in the opposite direction. Um, He was asked, well, what would people say to you? He said, I've had general directors send me email messages complimenting my voice and then saying, when you lose 50 pounds, get in touch again and I'll give you live auditions. That's basically saying, no. Nope, you're too fat. That's that's what that is. Yeah, they're they're never going to come back around and see see where he's at in six months. Yeah. That's a no. We... It's so easy for us to turn the conversation to health and, oh, you know, but we only care about his heart or we, you know, we don't want him to die of X, Y, and Z. But at the end of the day, I think all of these things are just the result of desirability politics that unfortunately have come with classical music, that have, have come with with opera. An- another part of this I wanted to um, highlight, let me say, is I began to look at rejection in a different way. I used to get a bit down when I received a note like that or just a flat out refusal about an audition, but I began to use that as fuel to make me want to work even harder to be an evil, even better vocalist. I thought they may not want me right now, but they will need me at some point, mm. you know, that's mm-hmm. what we're talking about when when I say poison into medicine, one mm-hmm. of those Buddhist principles, taking that rejection, taking all of that negative energy and pouring it into his practice, pouring it into his performance. And look at him now. He's all people can talk about. They talk about him so much. They're, they're, they're going straight to writing articles about his body. You know, I, I think there's there's a bit of that in there, but mm. I, I, I celebrate him. There, there's, there's no one who can deny his quick, quick impact and splash in in the industry. Why can't it just be that? I don't know. Why, I, why, why can't we just be celebrating the man? I know? have I have no idea, man. And I want to go back to something that you said uh, at the health issue. There, there are big people who are completely healthy. Period. Period. <laughs> so you know, let's just jettison that. Yeah, just right get rid a, of that right away. But also, just think about the stick-to-itiveness and the fortitude that it takes to keep getting up after you hear things like this because he said it took him three years mm-hmm. of auditioning and just trying to get back out there before the first stage operatic engagement came to him so that's that's a lot of of heart 
Speaking of hearts. Yeah. And big hearts. Yeah. yeah. So we can sit here and disparage the writer and the existence of this article, but I guess if I flip the shoe over, maybe it's good that this is something that's to the front so that more people are just aware of this as a conversation, of this as a reality for certain opera singers. What do you think about that? Is it is it better for uh for these conversations to come to the front, for there to be articles about Lemmy's body size for the sake of the dialogue? Yeah, I'm not quite in the same spot you are on that front because, again, I believe that this this article was not written for you. Sure. This was written for a very, this had a very different reader in mind. And I think that for that reader, then this is a good article. Folks like yourself, and to a degree, me, We'll we'll look at it and, and find the seams. Yeah. And and the glaring <laughs> things that should be different. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, if if anything, it helps shine a light, maybe help us view ourselves because everyone has well, I I won't I can't speak for everyone, but I imagine that everyone has things that when they look in the mirror, you think away, or based on what people said about you when you were a kid. You know, I of course I, I went through with I was a I was a chubby kid. So I I had certain traumas that I had to deal with. And you know, and in my early twenties, when I tell you I was stick thin, I was stick thin. And a lot of that had to do with my not wanting to have the experience that yep. I had as a kid. You know, those those things travel with you and and maybe articles like these, dialogues like these can help all of us sort of see ourselves, make us feel seen, help us understand that many people go through body things, body body mm-hmm. traumas. I just think my what 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 I want to make sure people understand at least from my perspective is that there's so much artistry, there's so much accomplishment, there's so much to celebrate about a man like Lemmy Pulliam being critical of his weight or even attempting to make it a part of a, a dialogue, in many cases, I think does more harm than good, mm. perpetuates more bad than good. Mm. Like I say, I think that there are probably some people who need to read this article, uh, probably not you and I. At the end of the article, um, Lemmy Pulliam, you know, brings it back to something that I think is 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 really special. He says, uh, my mother walked up to me and gave me a hug and a kiss and said, God bless you. I'm extremely proud of you. My oldest brother, whenever I go to perform, he always reminds me to make the family proud. And his response on Friday night was, that's how you make us proud. Isn't it great how at the end of the day, through all of these traumas, through all of the celebrations and standing ovations and, and everything in between, what really matters is when you've really made an impact on the people that you want to make an impact yeah. on. Yeah. Having having that family there, you know, having people who you know will never bring up weight, who 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 don't even care about that, but they're in the crowd backstage celebrating you for you exactly as you are. I love that piece of it. I suppose my encouragement is just to continue to be critical of the way that we conflate a person's physical appearance, not only with their health, but what they have a right to do with the careers that they are are worthy of or anything. None of that is neither here nor there. Classical music happens inside and outside of bodies of all shapes and sizes. And it's important for us to dismantle problematic systems everywhere we can. So... 
It'll, Shout out to Lemmy Pulliam. Yeah, Let's keep rooting for him. It'll help you out to just go and listen to the man sing. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And, and that's what we're about to do now. Here's an excerpt of Lemmy Pulliam featured with the Oberlin Orchestra in a performance of The Ordering of Moses by Nathaniel Dett to get us to our next accidental. I will sing unto Jehovah, for he has triumphed saying the name Robert Nathaniel Dett more and more these days, just as we're saying, you know, William Grant still Florence Price, Margaret Bonds more and more. I, I tended to think of Nathaniel Dett as more of a piano composer. Me too. We're getting all the way to orca- to cantatas, to, you know, orchestral music with choir and, and soloists. So, you know, in, in addition to just highlighting Lemmy Pulliam's work and trajectory, just highlighting the fact that there is so much more of of this uh, so-called canon, you know, music by black composers that we've never highlighted and, and never celebrated. And here it is with folks like Lemmy Pulliam helping us bring it to light and, and share it with more and more audiences. So mm. once again, shout out to him. All right, we got one more um, accidental through your drive-through window what uh, what, yeah. well, what, do you, what what accidental do you give this one first let me ask you a few questions here are you a, a mcdonald's man or a burger king man i don't know how to go or to burger when, king when, we've Wednesday, had this conversation Wendy's? burger king is always closed like every <laughs> every burger king i ever pass by is shut down or closed so between the burger king and mcdonald's i would have to say mcdonald's but yeah but wendy's really is the choice if it's available second yeah. question before i give the accidental as you sit and eat your combo meal of choice mm-hmm. what beethoven would you like to hear <laughs> as you're eating none but go on <laughs> go on all right i'm going to take you over to <laughs> independent.co.uk going across the pond for this story mcdonald's to play beethoven music after staff injured in a coin fight <laughs> the chain yep i'm giving it a flat the chain is to introduce measures in partnership with local police now Based on the framing <laughs> of all of that, what so, what what do you think well, went down well, in that McDonald's? I, I, so my first job was McDonald's. Mm. I worked at a very busy McDonald's, and fights happened. You know, mm-hmm. I, it, 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 it it was a thing, but. For it to be such a problem, I mean, look at look at how uncivilized those people over in Europe are. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're we're taking their version of classical music mm. and calling that classical music. They can't even go to McDonald's without starting a fight. Damn. That's right. No, this is in Wales, actually. Oh, excuse Wales. me. Wales. Excuse me. <laughs> right. Uh, classical music will be played at a branch of the McDonald's in a bid to tackle antisocial behavior among youths, according to a report. The music of composer and pianist Beethoven and others will soon be heard at the fast food chain in Wrexham, North Wales. The 
hilarious part to me. <laughs> so I understand how maybe if you're playing punk music or pop music, maybe people might want to hang out. And from people hanging out, you know, that can turn into, into fights or or what do they they say antisocial behavior. Behavior. The the just hilarious thing to me is that they don't just cut the music off. Like that's also a choice. Right. They, they don't just leave it in silence. They said, no, actually, let's play music that's gonna repel. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> These people and look, this is not me saying that. This is them. This, this is this is McDonald's considering Beethoven music that will repel young people. Or at least lull you into a, a state of <laughs> compliance. <laughs> so uh, so probably next is they're going to install, you know, a, a bunch of pointy things on the seating so that you can't get too comfortable. Yeah. That'll be another thing. It says here, the branches also. <laughs> so they're recreating the concert hall experience. <laughs> the branch is also going to turn off the free Wi-Fi during oh my, the evening. See, a, a concert hall. That's with what classical doing. <laughs> music starting at five o'clock. Oh my goodness. On the button. It has to start at five o'clock on the button. So what does this say to you about attempts to get younger audiences listening to Beethoven? We have all of these folks trying to innovate Beethoven, and we have one global organization, a, a global institution, a global corporation that really understands the impact that Beethoven has on younger people. A few weeks ago, we had a, uh, a, a European, an, an English um, article about how now classical music is hip. Right, so, which, like, so which one so, is it? So they're going to invite the riots now <laughs> by playing Beethoven. They're going to be like, no Wi-Fi and Beethoven, sign me up. <laughs> but a coin fight broke out. So my qu what does that mean exactly? I, I, a handful of change? Did they maybe, have a sock full of nickels? Maybe. I'm, <laughs> but, what, what, but whatever it is, Beethoven is bringing it to a stop. <laughs> evidently. So it's not the first time that McDonald's restaurant has used classical music as a way to tackle this behavior. Uh, they brought the measures in earlier and had seen a reduction in such incidents. So it worked. What is this neighborhood like, is my question. Coin fights in a McDonald's and Beethoven is going to quell, it's going to soothe and calm us. So they're also talking about, you know, because of the success of this classical music approach at McDonald's, they're talking about using the Beethoven, the classical music on the tube, as they call it, the subway system. Mm. If you if you don't know to to keep people keeping calm, you know, while while we're at it, any other ideas? Where where else do we not want young people to be? I suppose that's where the classical music needs to play. Maybe blare the classical music on your front porch to keep the children off your lawn and off your porch. You know, uh, play it, play it on the school bus. I mean, what where 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 else? Because obviously, <laughs> McDonald's is on to something about the actual impact of of this music. Hey, if it works, go around town erecting poles with loudspeakers on the top, just blast it over the whole city. Put it on the freeway. Everybody Let's just will do be it. just I mean, low. <laughs> into compliance. You know, I'm, I'm interviewing a lot of people these days, not just for Triloquy, but some, some of my uh, other projects. And without me soliciting anything, it's becoming more and more and more common for people to use him as the example of what we need to move away from. L later on this month, I have a couple of uh, specialists in early music and in, in like 15th and 16th century music. And even they are like, it's too much Beethoven. So what do we do with this reality? You know, so I'm, I'm mentioning that, you know, people are like, okay, too much Beethoven across the board. I don't even have to say nothing. Mm -hmm. McDonald's recognizes that Beethoven will repel young people. 
what does that leave <laughs> as far as a conversation about expanding the repertoire? I understand that so many people love Beethoven, but if the times are changing, if the if the wheel is turning, and in more and more ways we're recognizing that we've spent too much time with this composer, for me it's very clear what the road forward is. Put Beethoven on the shelf and let's make room for other things. So I'm I'm ser- seriously though, as you're sitting there eating, which Beethoven piano sonata is going to go with your meal? Mm, I mean, <laughs> well, why do you ask? Do you have an idea? I do. Okay, go. What, what's your idea? Judging by the fist print I get in every single one of my hamburgers from McDonald's, I'm going to say the hammer clavier. Okay, well, very, very, very good. Where's my? <laughs> there it is. There it is. Your hammer clavier. <laughs> and and look, I. I am among the people who really can't appreciate Beethoven's music. So we can we can joke and, and laugh all day long. And for me, I feel like people can sort of see it as a judgment call. But like, again, just to repeat myself, it's becoming clear to me that in many conversations and many, many iterations from, from many approaches, we're recognizing that this is the old guard. It's not attracting new audiences. It's not attracting people to the genre. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's actually repelling them so well it doesn't actually say they're trying to repel them they want to they want to calm they want to just keep the behavior from happening they don't want to repel them they want them to be cool i get that but really what we're talking about is they don't want those people in the space as they are we want you here but we want you here in this type of way so playing this music will allow you to be different. And I think that's what we're talking about in the concert hall. We we pretend that we want diverse audiences, but we want diverse audiences that sit in those small, uncomfortable seats for, for an hour and a half to two hours, sometimes even more, you know, to, to only clap when it's appropriate mm-hmm. not to be on your cell phone, you know, so I think it's a, a similar thing. It's It's do you want people in the space as they are, as they come, as they act when they're there or not? And if the answer is no, I sort of approximate that to repelling people away, at least repelling certain behavior. If they end up with a surge in Beethoven popularity, I'm going to laugh. And I'm and I'm, I'm gonna going completely to completely shut up. You know, I'm going to <laughs> shut up. But I don't know if that's the case, but we'll see. Any, any, Coming soon. Anything else here? <laughs> to a McDonald's slash Burger King near you. All right. Well, we'll have both of those accidentals in the uh, description. We're going to move on here to the second movement with a little Beethoven. We, we we don't typically give him a whole bunch of room here on Triloquy, but we can give him some room today. When I think about Beethoven compositions that might have the opposite effect, I, you know, I was trying to think of what is the rowdiest, sort of loudest Beethoven I can think of. And what I came to is Wellington's Victory. Are you familiar with that tune, Wellington's Victory? Yep. It was one of those tunes that at my first radio station, they didn't like for me to play it on the radio because they say they don't uh, like the idea of things with car horns or explosions or anything with people driving. We don't want to panic anyone. So, mm. you know, maybe... <laughs> he wants to keep calm. Maybe McDonald's needs to stay away from this Beethoven composition if they want to keep everyone calm. But here's a little bit of uh, Wellington's Victory by Ludwig von Beethoven himself to get us into the second movement of this week's opus. I think about the opposite end 
of the conversation because <laughs> when we're talking about, see, I, and I'm, I'm going to show you how it gets problematic quick. When we talk about Beethoven calming uh, uh, audiences, uh, patrons <laughs> at, at, at these institutions, mm -hmm. we have to think about, okay, well, what do you think is the opposite of what they're desiring? What music would they certainly not play to keep these people at bay or, <laughs> or to or to keep them there i'm and i'm not gonna i'm, I'm not gonna go down that road but yeah. if there is a calming music if there is a right sort of music for the tasks at mm -hmm. hand for them there must be a wrong type of music sure. and you know I'll, I'll i'll just say i can only imagine what they think about hip-hop and other black musics wow. but anyway we're here in the second movement where scott and i here during Black History Month, are going to celebrate some uh, black music as as we typically do throughout the year. I, I guess that is a a good little mini point of conversation. I wonder what uh, you have to say or what your thoughts are on the celebration of black music throughout the year, as opposed to just Black History Month. We're getting better as a people, as a classical music people, of of not limiting music by women to March, black music to February. But I think it's still worth just noting that. We're, we're allowed to celebrate black things outside of February. Sure, and that's something that we've been pushing for on the podcast. That's a, a frequent question that I've asked some of our guests is, do you think uh, we should just have a packed February of black music or a little bit in each and every one of your offerings? Mm -hmm. And I was really surprised that it, it caused some people to sit and think. Yeah. But obviously the end answer is both. Exactly, yeah. Right. Pack, pack February and include it. Year round. All right. right. Anyway, what you got this week? Get us started. Well, the my choice changed at the last minute when I heard about the passing of Barrett Strong. Mm. Do you know the name? Yeah, of course. Legend. Right. Barrett Strong. Uh, you always ask um, people uh, growing up in your house, were you uh, a Michael house, a Michael Jackson house, mm. or a Prince house? Right, right. Well, in my house, it was Stevie Wonder and all the surrounding Motown sound around that. So... Um, I knew his voice without knowing, knowing without knowing who Barrett Strong was from a pretty early age, mm -hmm. but he had far more success as a writer than he did as a performing artist. Sure. He wrote, heard it through the grapevine. Uh, I wrote down some of the some of the tracks that he's most famous for. Can't get next to you. Uh, Papa was a Rolling Stone. War, the Temptation song. So he's got a. a very deep stack of hits behind him but for me the first one that i heard and one that as a mobile dj would usually get the crowd bumping is one called money that's what i want the best things in life are free but you can I guess to return to our first conversation in this opus, you know, the, the idea of music being emblematic of cultures, of regions, of, of people. I wonder if you can speak to Motown generally as one of those American classical musics, one of the classical musics of the world through the way we we send that lens or see, uh, see through see that lens. Why is Motown a classic. Why is Motown 
the foundation of a musical culture here in America from from your perspective? For me personally, it, it's easy to talk about it as foundational or as a classic music is because I love it. Sure. Because it was the sound that was, you know, frequently coming out of the radio when I was growing up. I think but, I, I think, you know, I, I guess what I'm getting at is Motown was not just a phase. It wasn't just an era. It's something that is foundational. You know, mm -hmm. it, it wasn't a flash in the pan, so to speak. We may not be making Motown music today as Motown was made back in those days, but it's, at least from my perspective, so much more than something that just happened. It, it's, sure. it's, it's important. It's foundational. It's classical. And it's not hard to look around and find the threads of it mm -hmm. in right, music, exactly. not, not just... In you know the the seventies and eighties, obviously there were R and B bands that were uh, uh, recreating the Motown sound um, clear up to today. It's 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 an influence in so many current artists that you can't deny that it's foundational or a classic style. Yeah, I'm with you there. Well, uh, rest in peace to Barrett Strong. He's 81 years old, man. Let's just continue to remember Motown and what it was. What an opportunity for orchestras here in the United States and even all around the world to shine a light on this foundational genre of music through orchestral performances that highlight the importance of this. The recordings exist. The performances exist. Let's move toward that. Let's let's fight for it. Let's let's honor our elders and honor uh, really what what is ours here in the United States. Or right, well. Uh, what I'm bringing in this week is a little closer to that so-called traditional aesthetic. So my thing on um, airplane rides, I like to sleep as much as possible. I just don't like to be awake in, in, in an airplane, yeah. not, not because I'm afraid, but I just hate being bored or, or, or hate feeling like I have nothing to do and I'm in this metal tube and there's nothing for me to do but wait. So right. for me, that's a, a time to take advantage of, of the time and, and catch a few Zs. I don't get enough of them anyway. Um, so when I'm as I'm doing that, as I'm working to fall asleep, I like to just have music on in my uh, earbuds, in, in my ears to sort of be the, the undertone to my sleep as opposed to, you know, just the loud engine sounds and all that sort of thing. So I was going through uh, some orchestral music uh, in my own personal collection that I hadn't listened to in a little while. And I remember the name William Banfield or Bill Banfield, as many people know him. I, I don't know if you're familiar with that composer, but I, I got on to him for the first time uh, down in Knoxville when I was you know, doing some Black History Month programming. Uh, I came across uh, the Akron Symphony Orchestra's performance of his Symphony Number no. 6, and it's subtitled Four Songs for Five American Voices. I'm, I'm sure I've shared it on Triloquy before, but basically what the piece does is honor the legacy of Black music of, of, mm -hmm. of American music. Uh, I played a little bit of, of the opening movement, the opening of the third movement in the introduction. On the drop the it, needle. It, it, it was a subtitled, I'm Dizzy Over Gillespie. So, you know, his the, the way that he honors those two uh, figures. He also honors Sarah Vaughn in this um, in in this piece uh, of of music, and also Leonard Bernstein. And mm. I know Leonard Bernstein is not black, but I, I think it's special for him to be recognized by black people for his activism, for his advocacy, and a way to take a black piece of music to really highlight how it can bring us together. You know, it's not about separating people who are not black. It's about highlighting a way in which 
you know, the the perspective of this black composer shines a light on even more than the black perspective. So uh, here's a little bit of the first movement of this work, uh, subtitled If Bernstein Wrote It, a really excellent example of the diversity of black creativity, of, of, of black creation, and how that black creativity and creation can, like I said, shine a light on so much more. A little bit here, the first movement of William Banfield's Symphony Number no. 6. For many listeners, they just hear the orchestral aesthetic, which is fine. I get that. For me, I definitely hear something more contemporary, but contemporary in a way that's outside of a lot of people's idea of contemporary classical music, very tonal, so to speak, very uh, listenable. It has the the little nods, uh, you know, to uh, Bernstein's West Side Story in there with the, mm. the, the different instruments. I wonder if you could, how you would describe uh, the way that you can recognize that as something more contemporary than Tchaikovsky and, and Rachmaninoff and, and those people. Do you hear that music and hear something a little bit more contemporary? Leonard Bernstein does have a sort of um, stereotypical sound, sure. something that's a little bit easier to identify. So uh, giving a tribute to him would be pretty easy. I'd think show tunes you know, yeah. or uh, big sweeping dance steps like mm -hmm. that. Um, it's splashy. Sure. Uh, Bernstein's music is uh, a splashy and, and exclamatory and, you know, bursts. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, as we heard in the intro, William Banfield doesn't just stick solely with that aesthetic. He's one of those composers that's not afraid to put a jazz combo within the orchestra and, and highlight it. So those aesthetics are in there as well. But for me, it's that first movement that really, I think, highlights what I see as the bridge, as the transition. I think we need to get all the way to normalizing what we call jazz in orchestral spaces, mm. in, in the concert halls, going all the way to R&B and folk and bluegrass and all of those things. But if we need to transition, I definitely think that contemporary American aesthetic and approach to orchestral music can be that, and people can do it and not be offended or afraid because it's something that is just feel good at the, at the end of the day. Really beautiful music there. Let's say you're a composer and you're putting together a piece that's similar to this. Okay. Who who's the the white person you put in there to to immortalize? Who's your Kenny Rogers? Right, right. On the wall. Hmm, that is a that's a very good question. The first name that's coming to mind for me <laughs> <laughs> because of the time that I spent in Tennessee is Dolly Parton. I, oh, I would okay. I would definitely put put that sort of thing in there. But I'm also thinking about some of the contemporary faves. I think uh, Lady Gaga is an incredible songwriter, and I think there will be uh, really easy ways to incorporate her sounds and, and aesthetics into a, an orchestral context. She even mm. re has uh, referred to herself many times publicly as a composer. Um, 
So, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, again, building those bridges, I guess the point you're making, building bridges across cultures can, mm. you know, can also be very important. But you're right. Kenny, Kenny Rogers is uh, <laughs> he's, he's one of the picks uh, right. among the black people. I was telling you before we cut on the mics, I've been listening to a little bit of Phil Collins as well. So, you know, there there's right. some people there. <laughs> there's some people that, that made the cut. But again, uh, shout out to William Banfield. Please go check out his Symphony Number no. 6, a really uh, incredible example of a contemporary view on uh, orchestral programming and orchestral writing, and in a way that incorporates all sorts of different sounds, uh, a, a really a dynamic piece of music there. Uh, but we're here in the uh, third movement where this week's guest is Salim Washington. I was so glad to get connected with Salim. Uh, he actually has lineage that points back to Memphis, uh, the Memphis area anyway, where, where I'm from, but he spent the past several years teaching and performing in South Africa. So we talked Talk a bit about his journey over to the motherland, what it's like to uh, engage music there, and his take on that uh, American genre of classical music that many people refer to as jazz. So really uh, incredible conversation that I'm excited to share with y'all today. To get into this uh, third movement, I'm going to uh, showcase an excerpt of Salim Washington doing something that I hadn't really heard before. This is an excerpt from the Red, Black, and Green Revolutionary Eco Music Tour from back in 2014, and he's playing over changes and playing over changes incredibly, not on the saxophone, not on the trumpet or even the flute, but the oboe. Okay, can you say nice. you've heard much jazz oboe? I, not I one certainly time. have not. Not well, one time. You, well, you're about to now. So here's a little bit of Salim Washington laying it down here on an instrument called the oboe of all things. And here's my conversation with him. Hope y'all enjoy. <laughs> raised uh, in, in the Church of God in Christ. Um, Come on, and, Kojic. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they take their music very seriously, number one. And number two, uh, they're deep in the folk practice of music. And so music, um, uh, <laughs> how to put it, the, the, the epistemology is quite different. So um, in the Western tradition, you have to become a virtuoso, and then you get to perform. Mm -hmm. But in the church tradition, in the Black conservatory, you don't have to be a virtuoso to be a performer. You just have to be a performer. Right. And virtuosity is something that will come if you do what it takes and have what it takes to become a virtuoso. But it's not the entry level to music making. So it's a completely different way of learning music. Right, because music. We, we, when I played in church, we never evaluated music um, in the ways that they do in the university. Right, so no one said, "Did you hear that harmonic resolution? Did you hear how slick she was on that flat five? That's that's not what church musicians talk about. Mm -hmm. They talk about 
did the Holy Ghost come? And if the Holy <laughs> Ghost came, it was good music. Uh, if it didn't come, then it wasn't as good. No matter what, technically, you might be able to say about either example. And so um, that's a different orientation toward music making, music learning, music appreciation, <laughs> and so forth. And so, uh, yeah, it, that's true for me. And uh, it brings a lot to our great tradition, I think, a lot. Yeah, there's so much that goes into um, teaching that musicality or teaching that spirit, that spirit on the conservatory side of things. It seems like so often you have musicians who technically can do anything, but they can't really make an audience feel. And that's where a lot of the, the teaching has to take place. While on, on the Black side of things, you know, we can make folks feel. And I, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, a singer who might, you know, be having a hard time getting the tune started or something. There's affirmation that comes from the congregation. You know, take your time, sister, and, and all, <laughs> and all that sort of thing. I'll, all of that to to ask you if you know um, you could talk about how you flip that on its head in your teaching now over on the continent because you don't have to teach that spirit. You know what do you find yourself focusing most on with your students? I I it's a multivalent approach. I try to adopt the mentor tradition mm. uh, where you are brought onto the bandstand and into the life of a person more experienced than you uh, as a primary way of learning, as a primary pedagogical approach, along with everything that goes with the conservatory or the university. So uh, that's one thing that I've, I've enjoyed uh, because here I'm, I'm Baba, I'm Pops, mm. you see. So, um, that gives me uh, a lot of access in, in certain kinds of ways. So that's been very beautiful um, to see that. I find myself, in addition, trying to talk about the notion of swing, hmm. um, the notion of swing, and whether you play in front of the beat or directly on the beat. That's something that I, I find myself trying to find creative ways of teaching. Um, we also talk ab about uh, the society that we live in because it, it is um, something that, that's impossible to ignore. Yeah. <laughs> and so because of um, we have to be able to talk about it. And so I'm finding myself talking a lot about the realities that surround us all, the concerns that we have about it, you know, what we think we're doing anyway, you know, what, what is the artist, what, why are we picking this, you know, exactly. Um, so sometimes it veers in that direction, <laughs> but sometimes, uh, it's about technique. Uh, there's a, like I said, the students that I'm dealing with are are not the ones who come ready uh, in terms of te technique uh, and, and theoretical 
uh, nomenclature and so forth. So a lot of attention is given to that. <laughs> One thing that I learned was that some of the most celebrated musicians here are musicians who started relatively late mm. in life. They don't they don't have instruments in their schools, right? They don't have music programs. A lot of people get it from the Salvation Army. A lot of horn players come from that. But um, the fact that th they're coming, how to put it, how to put it, No, I uh, let me think about that. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> no, no, no worries. You know, w w when when you mentioned that, you know, really leaning into that mentor-student uh, dynamic, uh, you're being known as Baba. I can't help but to think about uh, how that's in many ways foundationalized when it comes to the relationship between parent and and child. Um, ancestrally, of course, you know, you, me, all of us, you know, we're from the motherland, but more immediately, you know, you, you have a, a, a more, uh, stateside sort of, uh, relationship, especially when it comes to your parents and you make sure, you know, if, if people go to your website, that's one of the first things they read about you is about your parents. Why is it so important, uh, in your view for people to know the story of where you came from specifically? The story of your parents. Um, the story of my parents is important to me because uh, I'm I'm the first generation on on both sides of my family that was born off the plantation, right? So uh, for me, that's a significant historical shift. Number one, uh, and number two, uh, that means I was raised by people from that culture. And mm -hmm. when we migrated, right, from Tennessee to Detroit, we were really up south because the people in our church, the people in our neighborhoods, the people in our schools came from the same region that we did. And so there's, there, there was that continuity of a certain, certain aspects of, of, of uh, the culture, how I ended mm -hmm. up in, being in Kojic, for instance. Um, so... Uh, that's really important to me, and 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 the the enormous privilege that I have because of the generation that I come from, where there were opportunities that um, my parents just plain old fashioned didn't have. Yeah. Uh, and and but I did. So uh, you know, there's there's a gratitude and <laughs> uh, how blessed am I attitude. And that and that relates to the point we were talking about previously about these young people who are coming to music relatively late because in because they because they cannot do otherwise. Yeah. So um, in the states, if you are not already playing, you know, with a lot of a lot of discipline and knowledge, you know, by the time you are a young adult, then you are told this is just not for you. Right, <laughs> you know, find something else to do with your life. So I was really surprised um, to see just how uh, proficient uh, people can become, no matter when they start. Mm -hmm. So that was a learning thing. Uh, I also learned the difference. For me, 
uh, African-American jazz beat is polyrhythmic, of course, is, is coming from West Africa, but our most fluid performances are oftentimes in four. Right. And we'll make four sound like six, and we will play in six, right? But our default is four. Well, in South Africa, their default is six. And they'll try to make it sound like four. It's, it's exactly the opposite side of that clave in a way. So, um, so I'm, I'm learning a lot, you know. <laughs> I'm learning a lot, uh, not only about their specific traditions, but just about musicianship and, and, and musicality in, in general, uh, which is something. Here's something that you would appreciate coming from a church background. Um, my favorite music in South Africa uh, is when they toy toy when they do the political protest. Oh wow! Or when they're in the audience, the audience members at a show or concert, uh, it's just magnificent. The harmonies that they come up with and and the rhythms that they that they seem to handle so dexterously. You know, as they do do the two step that they have perfected, it's 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 amazing. It's amazing, and it's not the professional class. It's 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 like it's like going to church in that respect. That the spirit of the music certainly is helped by certain type of uh, technical virtuosity, but not entirely dependent upon it. You know? mm, mm. So. so- with that, you know, with that in mind, you know, you're doing so much learning still at this stage of your career. I wonder if you could paint the picture of, of what it looked like a little earlier. Can you draw the line between, you know, getting your footing as a musician all the way to that musicianship getting you to Africa where you're still learning so many things? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it took many years of dedication. Uh, and study. Um, I've I've been listening to South Africa and performing South African music since the 1970s. Um, I played with a band in in Detroit uh, called Kumba and another one called the Sun Messengers. And uh, we used to play South African music and especially those that were in exile were were on heavy rotation. And um, you know, that was part of my exploration of what South Africa might be like. You know, that's what, when I started wanting to go. So, yeah. I know I remember in a, in a previous conversation when you were talking about first getting to the motherland, uh, you talked about the Soweto uprisings, even the fact that there are different types of visas. If I'm remembering correctly, maybe a white visa right. that you could get. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Honorary that. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, that was when South Africa really came into my consciousness. It was in 1976, doing what is now known as the Soweto uprising, because it started in Soweto, but it was actually nationwide. Mm. Uh, and it was... You know, they, they were protesting against Bantu education, which, which was a crippling and demeaning and thoroughly racist educational system designed to keep Blacks in their place and so on and so forth. And these people were young people, teenagers even, 
that were leading this struggle. And they that was the year that I, I graduated from high school. So I was also a young person and I was so impressed. So I started uh, looking at the pictures. I, I was uh, uh, blown away by the similarity in their spiritual effect uh, to African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then came to find out that they had big bands. They had uh, second line music. They had bebop. They had gospel. They had R&B. They had free jazz. They had, I mean, they like uh, contemporaneously, roughly, with African-Americans. So mm-hmm. um, I didn't know this, right? Because when they talk about the international flair for jazz, they're talking about Paris or maybe Japan or something. They're not talking about South Africa, although they should be, I think. Uh, because of apartheid, we don't know as much about them as as we might have. And so, when I first wanted to go after this, uh, you you had to, I would have had to have been uh, to apply for a visa to be an honorary white. Wow, to be able to go, and that that was just too much. I couldn't bring myself to do that, so I didn't get to go then. But you did make it. <laughs> I made it. I made it. I made it. I did make it because of what you say, because of the music. Um, I had uh, dedicated myself both to the learning of music and being able to perform it and experience it as deeply as I can, but also in in teaching and writing about the music. And so... Um, these two things came together, uh, and I was able to get a uh, Fulbright fellowship as an artist scholar. Um, and because I, at that time I could demonstrate some some achievements in music, and so uh, and also some understanding of of the, the social history, cultural history of South Africa, and so forth. So. I'm really drawn to to what you're saying about Africa coming into your consciousness. I know that, you know, culture, especially popular culture, is cyclical. So, you know, I, I, I will say that before I ask uh, this question. It's not that this newer generation has uh, discovered African consciousness, but from my perspective, it's definitely come back around. And my life time, you know, in my short lifetime so far, I see more people really engaging Afrocentric clothing, especially, but also, you know, reinvesting in what music is and even uh, religion and, and spirituality. What do you think about, uh, from your perspective, what do you think about this renewed um, sense of Africa coming into the consciousness of more Black Americans, as we're seeing? I, I'm, I'm overjoyed to see it. Uh, I think it's good uh, for us, and I think it's good for those Africans on the continent as well. Um, the, the notion of Africa, the notion of Pan-Africanism mm-hmm. is an African-American concept, right? Uh, it, That's going to be hard for people to hear. <laughs> it is, and it's, it's, it's an African-Caribbean concept. Mm. Also, right, because if you were in Africa, uh, 
you know, in the 15th, 17th, even 18th century, you didn't think of yourself as black, as a race. Um, and you didn't think of yourself as the citizen of the continent. You 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 were Iwe, Fulani, Zulu, mm-hmm. you know, you had a different type of political identity. So the whole notion of being from a continent and being racialized as other, as black, happened to the slaves that were sent, you know, westward. And so, of course, they are the ones that came up with the notion of pan-Africanism, that there has to be uh, some united effort to contend with the realities that we all share in one way or the other to some degree or another. Do you think the notion of pan-Africanism can have benefits specifically within music? You know, when you're talking about how jazz and bebop and all of these traditions, maybe even black orchestral music has a place on the continent. Is that not is that notion of pan-Africanism not a good way of highlighting that point? I think it is a good way. Uh, I'm going to take a page out, out of TC's book, Pan-Africanism, little p, little a, little p, not capital P, capital A. In other words, not pan-Africanism in terms of a, an ideology, you know, or something like that, but the more natural human process of how this music coalesced. So there are elements from West Africa, there are elements from Jamaica, there are elements from Cuba, there are elements from New York, there are elements from Mississippi, right? And all of this has made this music. So at its core, it is a Pan-African expression. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so... Uh, you, you know, the political surroundings of musicological discussions can sometimes have an impact on the conclusions that people draw. Right. You know, so when when I say jazz, I've, I think of jazz's great um, innovation, its great contribution to world music of the rhythm section. Music based on the rhythm section, right? Where you have the bass, the drums, a chordal instrument, you know, playing as a unit that dictates the harmonic schemes and the rhythmic feel and the tempo and all of this. And then you can have a singer or instrumentalist soloing uh, and interacting with that. We call that jazz. But you could call it rhythm and blues or punk rock or any t- anytime I see a drum set, I feel like I'm listening to jazz or one of his children, mm. you know, in a fundamental sense, right? Not in a stylistic sense, right? When we talk about uh, human evolution, human process, your process as a musician has led you currently uh, to writing music for orchestra. I wonder if you could talk about the transition from, you know, so-called jazz musician to now composer, even composer of orchestral music. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's quite a challenge. It's a thrilling challenge. Let me start with that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of voices to deal with. Uh 
And so it's interesting, you know, I wonder what would Charles Mingus have done if he, if he could have even kept a big man, let alone an orchestra uh, together, you know, as, as history will say, oh, we wish that it happened, you know, <laughs> but um, I, 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 I think um, there's a lot to learn. Uh, and there's also a perspective that I think I can bring because there's a way in which we could discuss Duke Ellington as 20th century orchestral music, right? Uh, with a different orchestration, you know, but definitely part of that Western tradition, whether people like it, <laughs> you know, or not. So um, there's that perspective. For me, uh, the third stream idea mm -hmm. uh, is something that was already realized in Duke Ellington. It was already realized in Charles Mingus. It was already here among us, see? Uh, but, you know, that's, that's a thorny kind of discussion to have in a way, I guess. I, guess. I, I had a conversation uh, with the music director of the Chicago Jazz Philharmonic some time ago, and the concept of third stream came up. I wonder, just for the sake of people who may not be familiar with that phrase, if you could, you know, define or speak to what you mean by the phrase third stream. Okay. This is something uh, that was coined by Gunther Schuller. Um, uh, the great conductor. And he, he wanted, um, he hypothesized that there was two streams of music uh, in, in America, in the United States. One was the jazz and the other was the Western art tra music tradition. Mm -hmm. And he thought you could combine these in a way that was natural that would produce a third stream that was both or neither, or something like that. So uh, in in the in the cod so uh, let let me see how do I want to ask this? When we try to codify and even normalize this third stream for more institutions, for more orchestras, what do you see as the uh, primary challenge? Do you think audiences are ready? Do you think it's more of a matter of musicians maybe not having the skills? Is it administrators who don't know how third stream centric programming is going to impact their donor base? What, what, do, what do you see as the, the barrier <laughs> or primary barrier to really normalizing this concept? Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, I well, let me start this way. The players are out there. There are players who can do it. Mm. There are players who can play the Western art tradition and can play jazz both at a high level. Um, because that is not the norm that we play American music and, and really explore that to the extent that we are repertoire oriented toward the Western art music tradition, because, because of that, there's not enough performances of it uh, for orchestras to change their hiring practices, right? Because these, these guys who have trained in such a way that would make them ideal for that, um, you know, don't get a chance, don't get a chance. So it's not because they're not, the, 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 so, <laughs> Would you hire these people 
Is there a zero sum game where you already have this big, you know, bill that you have to pay? But classical music doesn't pay for itself any more than jazz does. Mm. So I, I don't think that should be a primary consideration because it, it has never hampered the art form, right? The art form has persisted despite that. So not that we don't want it, but I'm just saying it's not it's not a, something that's going to keep it from happening. It might impede its progress or rate. Um, so what what is the problem? A political will, a cultural will, mm. is an aesthetic thing. Um, and 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 okay, since we're talking, right? Um, <laughs> The taint of cultural chauvinism is more than a little bit. See, so there there are these commodities. There are blind spots when it comes to American culture, right? Because it's disproportionately black, and there are some people for whom that is significant in a way that that doesn't make them say, you know what, this is what we should be supporting, you know, above all else. Um, that that's a real struggle. That's a real struggle because different aesthetics, different cultural histories, these things are tied, you know, to, 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 to political power, you know, which can translate to economic power, the ability to have international networks and Mm -hmm. structures that support, you know, your programming and so forth. Um, Yeah, that's, it's there. It's there. It's there. We do see pockets of it, you know. We see pockets of it, but I I think um, who determines? Who is it that's, that determines <laughs> what the repertoire should be? Yeah. You know? I used to do a thought experiment with some of my students, uh, particularly the, the people who were taking music courses as a gen ed requirement. They were not necessarily music specialists. So I would ask them, uh, how many of you know that Beethoven is a genius? And of course, since Beethoven was a genius, every hand goes up. So then I say, I tell you what, <laughs> I'm going to play two songs. Uh, and then one hand, I have a million dollars, and the other hand, I have a Glock 9. I'm going to play a Beethoven piece, then I'm going to play um, a Mahler piece, right? For a musician, this is easy. But if you guess right, you get the million dollars. If you guess wrong, you get the Glock 9. <laughs> How many of you will take that challenge? And far fewer hands go up when I ask that question. This is a thought experiment. Mm-hmm. So um, the the lesson, one of the lessons I draw from that is that everyone knows that Beethoven is a genius, but not because they know his music. It's because the culture teaches them. Ooh, that's that deep. You see, <laughs> they can't identify his music for a million dollars. But they know, right? They're not being told Fletcher Henderson is a genius. They're they're not being told that in the same way, with the same force, right? Um, 
with the same complete attention to effectiveness and so forth. So. Wow, that that's that's <laughs> incredible. Wow, <laughs> you know when I th- when I think about the way that these uh, systems have been perpetuated, I also think about the ways in which new systems are created that unfortunately run along some of these same paths. I'm thinking about all of the programs that are built to support uh, new composers or emerging composers. Uh, over and over again, I get the complaint that. We're building a system where an appreciation for new music centers composers who are 24 years old, you know, or or fresh out of of conservatory. You know, I wonder what your thoughts are on how we can nip that in the bud while we can. What can institutions do uh, to support folks writing music today who aren't fresh out of Juilliard or who aren't, you know, freshly 25 years old and and bright-eyed? How can we give more room to the more seasoned musician who is interested in writing music? Right, right, right. Well, you, you'd have, it's, it all goes to your selection process, right? Because mm-hmm. I've learned you don't get anything unless there's somebody on the committee that's willing to fight for you. <laughs> so... Uh, how how do you become that person? Well, there's a certain, this is another lesson I've learned living on the continent, uh, is that uh, th- there, there are good things that come with age. You know, it doesn't just make you uh, inconvenient or as, as you're suggesting, irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite the opposite. Uh, you're not inconvenient, you're helpful, and you're not in, irrelevant your perspective is very important and sought after. So um, I remember once being on a committee with Bob Blumenthal, the great jazz journalist. Mm-hmm. And um, we, were, we were giving out an award, cash money, to jazz musicians. And it was like, but this guy is established and this one is that. And he said, if you're not Sarah Vaughn or Dizzy Gillespie, <laughs> you are not established. <laughs> well. <laughs> so it's funny in a way and not funny in another way, but it's true. <laughs> so as we get more um, people positioned to highlight music from a broader range of emerging composers who have so many different experiences and views on what orchestral music can be. What are your hopes? What do you hope to achieve? You've already achieved so much as a musician, as a teacher, as a mentor. What are your goals as a composer? Well, I've, I've, I've uh, spent 12 months on a project uh, that I'm still pursuing. Um, and that is, it's a little bit impractical, I know, but I want to combine a jazz ensemble with the Philharmonic Orchestra with a three-person Pan-African rhythm percussion choir and a vocal choir. That's what I want to do. Um, and I'm writing the music for that. I've, I've written some music for that. Um, My hope is that uh, there's a way the concert hall, the Philharmonic Concert Hall, can give us that rich sonorities and possibilities uh, of the orchestra 
a long that can swing. Mm-hmm. I want to make extra swing. Can I put it like that? So I don't want us to be afraid of the drum set. Uh, did you see Terrence Blanchard's opera? Oh yeah, fire shut up at my bones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the the drums can work. The drums can work, you know. Uh it is the American contribution to instruments, right? It's the most dominant instrument uh that that came from America by far, right? Mm-hmm. How many music traditions around the world use the drum kit? <laughs> A lot. <laughs> so um you know, I want, I want, I want to be able to. I don't think of it as third stream. I think of it as colors available. Uh, yes, there is a tradition uh, to be learned and to and and, and to uh, imbibe, you know, in my soul. And I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not commenting against that. But what I do believe is that we have. A grand tradition here already. We we don't have to go looking for it. It's here. It's just it's it's just not been touted, right? In the way that 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 it will be one day. Mm, that's beautiful. How can yeah. folks uh, learn more about you? Reach out to you, and maybe even learn more about this uh, project of yours. Well, they can they can uh, go to. Uh, com, and they can contact me through there. Beautiful. Uh, well, my, my, my final question for you, you know, in the, in the spirit of Black history, again, I talked about not knowing so many names, especially when it comes to uh, the great jazz musicians, American classical, as I call it, but I'll, I'll use jazz for the, for the sake of, of this question. In my, you know, self-discovery, in my reading and viewing media, I quickly uh, was just very attracted to Nina Simone, and I consider her one of my musical mentors, one of my musical icons, someone that I wish I had learned about in music history 101, but someone who I'm so glad to, you know, uh, celebrate today. Um, who is that person for you or who are those people for, for you? Who do you consider the great black godfathers or godmothers of, of music? Well, as a composer, I'm going to go with Charles Mingus. Mm. Um, I'm going to go with Charles Mingus. Um, and of course, that's technically the wrong answer. The right answer is supposed to be Duke Ellington. And who am I <laughs> to say different? But uh, for me, uh, Charles Mingus is is the greatest disciple of Duke Ellington, and he adds to his knowledge of Ellington, you know, uh, the music that Bird made. He adds to that the Holiness Church music that we talked about before. Um, he adds to that serial music. Uh, he adds Strauss, you know, um, he adds rhythm and blues. So the thing about Mingus, though, that was different from the self-conscious third string composers sometime was that it didn't have the Frankensteinian, now I'm going to swing, now I'm going to go atonal. It didn't have that. It, w- it was seamless because it was synthesized through him, 
It was his honest expression. And he was truly a virtuoso as a composer, as well as as a player, as well as as a performer, as a band leader and so forth, right? Um, so, and his, his music, um, I don't know, man, it just, it covers so much territory. The depth of humanity that it expresses is, is really moving for me. There of a tune called Monin by Charles Mingus. I think we've actually shared Monin on Trilogy before, I think you're maybe, right. maybe a couple seasons ago. Uh, but I thought it was just very interesting for Salim to answer my question about his godfather musicians, you know, and the way that I venerate Nina Simone. He puts Charles Mingus up there, but not only puts Charles Mingus up there, makes an explanation about how many people would expect the answer to be Duke Ellington, at least from that so-called jazz perspective. Mm -hmm. You have a little bit more, a bit more experience in jazz than I do. I'm sure, of course, you have spun many Charles Mingus tunes mm -hmm. over, over your years in radio. Would you expect that there would be arguments or, or at least conversations around the veneration of Charles Mingus over Duke Ellington? Because I because Good I question. because I definitely hear Salim when he says the right answer is Duke Ellington and, and the circles I ran in you know down south uh, Louis Armstrong is is even higher up there you know he's considered the Godfather but there's there's no denying that Duke Ellington is way up there but apparently I guess there are some people who would feel away if you put Charles Mingus above Duke sure. Ellington well like you say I only I only have a little bit more experience in jazz than you do and. I would base this off of what I know true jazz aficionados to say. Sure. So the guy, uh, my English teacher in 11th grade, Fred Schoening, shout out to the late Fred Schoening, um, he was a huge jazz man. And for him, Charles Mingus was his hero. Mm -hmm. So just based on Fred's acknowledgement of it, I would say that Mingus is near the top. You got Michael Jackson and households, Prince household. A lot of people try to do the Beyonce or Rihanna, you know, so it sounds like now we have Duke Ellington or and Mingus, or Mingus huh? mm. you know, or, or you, you always used to talk about Beatles or Stones, you know, that right. sort of thing. So I, I guess it's fun to at least have the conversation. I need to become more familiar with Mingus. Of, of course, uh, you know, Duke Ellington wrote all sorts of orchestral stuff. That's why I'm more right. uh, familiar with him. But I need to do my due diligence as well and get to, into more of that American classical and discover more of uh, Charles Mingus. So my my little bit of uh, work there for Black History Month, if you're not as familiar with Charles Mingus, maybe you should take a dive uh, over there as well. So a huge shout out and thanks again to Salim Washington. Very honored uh, to be able to feature, feature you on this week of Triloquy. Well, we're moving into the 
third movement. And uh, since we're in this black classical sort of genre right now, we're going to transition into the uh, fourth movement with a bit of Big B King. This is uh, his 1968 rendition of a tune called I've Got a Mind to Give Up Living. Let's take a listen to some of this to get into the fourth movement. I've got a good mind to give up living. And go shopping instead. Oh, I've got a good mind to give up living and go shopping instead. Oh, to pick out a tombstone. B.B. King, when he was alive, was a huge name in Memphis. I, I knew the name B.B. King more than I knew the name Mozart and Beethoven when sure. I was a kid, you know, but just just because of the the type of city that I grew up in and, and the culture of the city, you know, where where uh, the home of the blues, as, as many people uh, talk about uh, Memphis. And I wanted to bring in some sort of Memphis-aligned blues because I think we all were thinking about Memphis this past week and this past weekend. I, I will have to admit that I put the whole situation of Tyree Nichols in a specific corner in my mind so that I could focus on the task at hand as I'm presenting at Sphinx and, and doing all these different things. Um, of course, it's hard to not say, well, here we go again. You know, how as much as we return to this conversation of police brutality, I think there are a few things about this to really think about when we think about the cruelty of humanity, the cruelty of policing. We're not talking about a man who was shot by the police accidentally or otherwise. They jumped him. They beat this man to death like an animal. It leaves me speechless. It leaves me absolutely speechless that that people will would do something like this. There was a lot of conversation about whether or not watching the video is important. Back when George Floyd was murdered and that video was first getting circulated, I was very vocal on social media talking about murder porn, how mm -hmm. we do not need to be sharing this, how we don't uh, need to give videos like this any room at the same time. The viewership of that video brought on an awareness that began a movement that we're still feeling the reverberations of. At this point in the dialogue, we're in 2023 now, how do you feel about viewing videos like these, viewing men, black men being beaten to death by the police? I think that I mentioned at the moment that George Floyd was killed that I was avoiding it because I don't like to watch snuff films. Yeah. And we know going into it that that's what this is. And the fact that it's a bunch of black men beating a black man, I don't think that that softens it, changes it at all. And I don't think I'm going to look at it. 
because uh, so I take it you watched. I did watch. Okay. I watched but, but because because this is the thing. Um shout out to Tesfa, our good friend Tesfa here in in Minnesota. In response back in the George Floyd days to my saying, "Do not watch this video. We should not be sharing this. We do not need to be spreading this." Tesfa brought up Emmett Till's mother I was and ask. and her decision to put you know, his deformed body on the cover, I think, of Jet Magazine mm-hmm. and, and how that raised awareness. So for me, it's it's hard for me to know where, the, where to land sometime because I can't deny the impact that viewing these tragedies has. I also would never say that anyone needs to because it's traumatic. It's traumatic to see. I was going to mention Emmett Till's name as well and just ask, do I need to? Am I going to get any additional information or feel a different way? By watching it. The only reason that I would encourage anyone to watch, or I guess I should say the only people that I would encourage to watch this video are people who think, and this is called Triloquy, this podcast, who think that there is a good police officer, that there is a such thing as good police. I think the more that we can see how normal it is for the police to do something like, you know, th- these aren't isolated events. No one can say that these are isolated events anymore. And these are the ones that make it on tape. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the, and the ones that we see. So I, for, for me watching the video, you know, and, and I, I, I don't, I'm all about unity and leading with compassion and, and all of those things, but there are just certain systems that are, are evil. And I can't help but to view policing as that the idea that because of a person's job, you have authority any sort of authority over a, a, another free American out here. I, I think that's ridiculous. So, you know, I, it's a very traumatic video. The only people that I would ask to watch it are people who still have in their minds that there is a such thing as a good police officer. There are a lot of police officers out there that have never and would never shoot anyone who have never and would never beat anyone to death. How can you remain affiliated with a system that does something like that at your place of work? If you had five colleagues who went outside and beat someone to death, would you be comfortable being affiliated with that institution? I would guess not. And that's how I view policing. I don't see how you can be a good person and wear that badge knowing what your colleagues are trained to do, knowing what we have seen over and over on film, and on top of that, knowing that there is so much more that we have not seen. What do you say to the people that want to make issue, you know, this is different because the officers were black? The only difference is that the officers were charged immediately. And I think that there is a relationship between the fact that these officers were black and how swiftly they were dealt with. That's so I, I will acknowledge that. And I do think that it is significant. It's not a non-factor that these five black men were charged and fired immediately. Because how many times have we seen police murderers on leave or mm-hmm. on leave without pay? So I, I do think that's some that's a conversation for for some people, but at the end of the day, policing is the issue. No person should have automatic authority in society over a, another person, period. But what about the piece of just because they're they're black does not mean that they're not holding up a white supremacist institution or organization. And that's the conversation that that I 
not only believe is important, but I think applies to much more than just policing. My arts connection is that there are so many systems that are perpetuated at the hands of Black people within the parameters of that violence. You know, I was actually feeling a little bit of this at Sphinx at times, and it's very challenging for me to say it, especially, you know, in, in mixed audiences uh, among people who are who are not black. But it's hard for me not to admit that just as those five black men perpetuated the violence of the police state all the way to someone's death, you know, so, someone being murdered, we have black people all across our classical music ecosystem that have been positioned to gaslight folks like me into thinking that I'm the problem, mm. that classical music doesn't have a race issue, as we've seen some some people write. It's certainly not as severe as murder, but in my opinion, from my perspective, it is the arts example of a white supremacist culture being perpetuated. Are black people not allowed to play Beethoven? I'm not saying that. I'm rooting for everybody black. And if there are people who want to do that and dedicate their lives to that, I'm rooting for their right to do that. And at the end of the day, we have seen over and over and over how certain systems, once you put marginalized people in there, are used as an excuse for those systems not being an issue. Um, we saw that in in the case of, of this murder. And I think we see that almost every time we go into the concert hall, Black people being used as the excuse, as the reason to perpetuate white supremacist cultures. I, I think it exists everywhere. On Friday night, they were prepping people saying we're going to release this or was it Thursday night anyway the night before it was released they say we want we want y'all to be prepared and they were getting ready for riots and demonstrations and such so that night that they said tomorrow we're going to release this what went through your mind were you concerned about fire i most certainly was you know most of my family lives down there in Memphis still. And, you know, we we have our group chat and they were talking about how work was letting out early. You know, my sister's kids, my sister had to pick up her kids early because daycare was shutting down. People were wow. boarding things up. But as far as, and I wasn't down there, I haven't been to in, in Memphis since, I don't know, over the summer. I didn't see any reports of fires or riots or okay. looting or or anything. There were certainly demonstrations right. as as there should have been. It's interesting to me how people who lose the most are the ones expected to be graceful and and forgiving and and calm. So while I am glad that there wasn't any of that like we saw here in Minneapolis in in 2020, I will always draw issue with, oh, well, we agree with your right to protest, but do it this way. You know, it's like you're you're policing people's reactions and and that that sort of thing has to go away as well. I, I'm not advocating violence. I'm saying that people are going to react. I, I've, you know, my, my Buddhism is rooted in cause and effect. I understand what the effect of police murder is when it comes to marginalized communities. So if, if there were fires and burnings, I would have said that's the, that's the effect of this. Thank goodness for them that the, that the people of Memphis aren't as violent as the police are. This is a hard question to ask you, but do you think the fact that there wasn't a violent protest will... Um, cause this to go away quicker does that make sense like 
Um, you because, yeah, yeah. That's an that's an interesting question. Um, it's not going to go away quick for Tyree's parents for but, for his friends right, but you, and, you know and, the, and like, family. But as, but as far as the broad conversation, the unfortunate thing is it's just so commonplace that we'll probably be talking about another police murder in mm-hmm. in a, another couple of weeks or so. I'm I'm glad that if there is any uh, lasting conversation surrounding this, the conversation is not about how people were looting and stealing and rioting and burning down their own communities. Mm. That can't be a part of the dialogue. We have to focus on what actually happened, on the violence of policing in America, even at the hands of black men. Mm. I'm I'm grateful that the conversation has the opportunity to stay there and not go off the trail about how violent black people are in reaction to the police. Mm. I got you. I'm just, I was just concerned because it, to me, it does not seem like the coverage has been as dense right. as it was when George Floyd was murdered. That's right. all. Right. Well, I've, I've, I've used the phrase poison into medicine a few times, this opus. That's, that's what I'm doing with this. Of course, I'm angry. Of course, I'm frustrated. Of course, I can't think about the fact that there's no reason that it couldn't be me. It's not like we're, 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 we're talking about the, and, and I think it's even very problematic to talk about the prototypical thug, quote unquote, because that's just a, a secret way of saying the N word at, at this point, you yeah. know, but it could be me. Will that be enough? You know, how long would the conversation last, you know, if, if we're talking about me instead of, of Tyree Nichols, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, all of those things run through my mind and it angers me and it frustrates me, but I am channeling that anger and that frustration to speak more truth to power, recognizing the harm and the violence of the police state does not exist within itself. We have to recognize how body politics, you know, um, plays a role in violent anti-blackness, the role of capitalism and anti-blackness and how the arts in one way or another, participate in that. That's my challenge to everyone. Let's see the police state, let's see anti-blackness in policing as one example of the overarching white supremacy that we're fighting against. We have to fight against it wherever we can. We fight against it here through the arts. And we have to recognize the way in which the way that we view classical music, the way that we program classical music is an iteration of this larger issue. Rest in peace to Tyree Nichols. All of the thoughts and prayers to his family, to his community, to the people of Memphis, and to the people of the world. Let's try to make this a better place. Let's see y'all next week.